Uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to be flicking around in our Bibles tonight, but you'll also uh, particularly find it helpful tonight to have your outline. You'll need that because we're jumping around different parts of the Bible. Uh, and I'm going to pray for us before we begin. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessing of your Word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Scriptures. And we pray that you will give us that humility that we need before your Word tonight. Help us to understand it correctly, but more than that, we pray that you'll help us to accept it and trust it, because you are the God who loves us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been uh, very encouraged by how many great questions we've had in over the last few weeks, uh, and uh, I think this congregation has won the award for the most questions entered, so well done. Uh, you don't get any prize, but anyway... Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we've got a couple of weeks now uh, where I'm going to think about a couple of the things that have been brought up. We're actually going to come back to it a little later in the year, have another couple of weeks and then again a little bit after that. And questions that don't get a talk, uh, we'll put out sort of a written email and uh, we'll put out all the questions so that, because often what happens is someone else asks a question, you go, yeah, that's right, that's my question. So we'll put out answers to all of those. Uh, but I particularly enjoyed the variety of questions uh, and some of them are like, uh, you know, what does this Bible verse mean or that sort of thing. And uh, for those, the, the answer might be two or three minutes. You might be thinking, well, why don't you do a sermon on one of those? But um, uh, they're the sort of ones we'll just email out a response. Uh, what instead I'm trying to do is sort of bundle them together to get to the key theological issues and give sermons on those. Uh, so that's what I'm going to try and do. I hope that makes sense. And so I have a uh, confession to make today, the question that I'm dealing with today, no one actually asked in these words. It's that question, well, actually you can't see that when I see that screen, but it's that question there. Can I really ask that? Uh, and actually, lots of you ask that question in, a, in different words, because uh, lots of people ask questions along the lines of, is it okay to ask God this? So you didn't say, what does God say with this? He said, is it okay to ask God this? Or uh, is it okay to feel this emotional response to God's Word? That's sort of a question. And so the big question for today is actually, how do I question God? And in a way, this talk underpins everything else we'll hear over this sort of broken up series. See, if you think about it, just think for a moment. To ask the God of the universe a question is a massive thing. If you really think about it, if you really know the God of the Bible, if you know how holy He is and how amazing He is and how righteous He is, the first question every Christian should ask is, well, what right do I have to ask any question of God? That's actually the first question a person who understands God thinks. What right do I have to ask? Now, if you think, well, of course I do, God owes me answers. If you think, well, if God wants me to believe in Him, He better answer all my questions then I actually want to challenge you tonight because I think your attitude is incredibly dangerous if you think that. And it suggests that you probably have a very, very small, far too small a picture of God and far too big a picture of yourself. You see, when you know the real God of the universe and you know His holiness and you know His purity and you know His power and when you know the reality of our fallenness, our sin then that should actually slow us down a little. I hope you agree. 
And so I think the answer the Bible gives to this question, do I have the right to ask questions of God, the answer is not just a simple, yes, of course you do. The answer is, amazingly, astoundingly, yes. Do you see the difference? It's not, yes, of course, in which case, oh, of course, because I'm so special, God should answer my questions. It's amazingly, astoundingly, yes. Despite who I am and despite who God is, yes. But then be careful how you do it. So let's start with the yes side. Come with me on the outline, the why we can ask questions of God. And it's a really, really simple answer. It's because our God is a God of revelation. God has spoken. Let's bring the first Bible passage up. Thanks, Patrick. From Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The first thing I want you to see, and it's something you should all know, God has spoken. Firstly, through the prophets in the Old Testament, and then finally for us in His Son, who we meet in the New Testament. So we have the very Word of God. Now, this is so important to get this right. God is not hidden. It's not like people go, gee, I wonder if I can find God. I better go searching for Him. There is no one who actually searches after God. We don't have to guess and work things out about God by looking at the creation and then saying, oh, well, this is what I think God is like. Now, God has actually answered our questions before you even thought them. God has answered all our questions before we've asked them in His Word. Now, we'll think about what if the answer to my question isn't in the Bible, a little later on, but the point is God actually encourages us to come to His Word with questions. God encourages us and always the right question to ask is, what does the Bible say about my issue? And the thing is though, sometimes God's Word is hard to understand on a particular issue and it's right, if you're struggling to understand it, to question and to grapple with it. One of my favourite verses is in 2 Peter, where even the Apostle Peter admits he finds the Apostle Paul hard to understand sometimes. So have a look at this, he says, also regarding the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, that's a really important point, he's saying the fact Jesus hasn't returned back yet is is an opportunity for more people to be saved. If you're thinking about why do I, why am I here? There's your answer. But then he says, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you, according to the wisdom given to him, he speaks about these things in all his letters, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. I find that incredibly comforting. And if you've ever been to Bible study group grappling with the book of Romans, or something like we read a bit of Romans before, and you've struggled to understand it, be comforted, the Apostle Peter struggle to understand Paul at times but then he says the untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures you see the thing is I find that comforting like I just said but it should also be challenging to us challenging that we should be careful not to be untaught that we should be careful not to be people who are ignorant and unstable and so twist the scriptures we should be people who work hard at grappling with it, questioning, at coming to understand God's Word. All through the Bible, we're encouraged to question and grapple with the Scriptures, to work out what they mean. In Psalm 119, our Old Testament reading before, we read, he uses language like, meditate on God's Word. He doesn't mean sit there, he doesn't mean in that Eastern sense of meditating, he means meditate in the sense of read it, 
and really try to understand it. That's what he's saying. And when he prays, what is his prayer? It's, help me understand your word, God. That's what I need. And that is the questioning we are definitely all encouraged to do. And how gracious is our God that he does reveal himself and his plans to us? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. God doesn't have to tell us anything. God is no more complete when he has us than when he doesn't have us. Have you ever thought of this? Sometimes I think people think God is like the great needy social worker in heaven. He sort of says, I need people to come to me to be helped and, and to be... God is perfect. God doesn't need us at all. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit are in perfect relationship for all eternity. They don't need us. It is all by grace, all because of God's mercy that God reveals so much of himself to us. And that is the most wonderful thing. So ask God your questions. But, next point. There is a difference between asking a question to understand God's revelation and questioning God. Every parent knows this. And if, if you're not a parent, you will have had two or three-year-old, you know, cousins or nephews or whatever, you know, or kids in kids' church and that sort of thing. When your kids are little, the question of why is wonderful. When you've got like a little toddler... And they go, why did my balloon float away when I let go of the string? And it's like they're exploring the world, they don't understand it, it's, it's, it's why, there's no accusation in it. Why does that light come on when you flick the switch over there? They're, they're just exploring things. But as a child gets older, the why becomes a very different question. It actually becomes a statement asserting independence. Why do I have to clean my room? They are not asking you for information about bacteria and dust and asthma and at that point. The question is not seeking information, there is an insolence. The why is questioning the parent-child relationship. There's a statement of independence. Who are you to tell me the way of things? Who are you to tell me what I'm meant to do with my life? And it's that sort of questioning towards God that Christians need to be very careful of. That's what Paul warns against in Romans 9. So that's what we read before, you might have it open, but we've also got it on the screen, I'm only looking at these couple of verses. Romans 9 is one of the key Bible passages on that question of election and predestination, the fact that God chooses us to be His children before the creation of the world. Probably the topic that if you have a series where you say, ask any questions you want, you are guaranteed to get more, over 50% was my bet before we did the series and you guys did not disappoint. And we'll deal with that after we've dealt with this, because you've got to have this talk before you get that talk. Because, of course, that doctrine does raise questions, and you've asked them, how can God be totally sovereign and yet we're not robots? How can God choose us and yet we choose Him? What about the people God doesn't choose? They are big questions, and I'll deal with those questions in future talks, next week or in a little while, but my answers, they'll actually be quite short sermons, you'll be pleased to hear. My answers will actually be quite short and simple because the Bible is actually really clear on that topic. But I've got a gut feel, call me a prophet, I don't claim to be a prophet, but on this one I'll, I'll take it, <laughs> call me a prophet, that for some my answer will not satisfy. And in a year's time when we say, let's have another tough question series, you'll write the same, answer, same question again because the issue is not understanding, it's accepting. 
And that's where Paul in Romans 9 gives us a gentle warning. He puts himself in the shoes of a hypothetical person raising a hypothetical question. Paul has explained that God is sovereign, God chooses. And then look at Romans 9, 19, we're only looking at a tiny bit. He says, you will say to me therefore, why then does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's the question of how can God judge people if he's in control? How is that? How can people still be responsible for their decisions? Now, he answers that question further on, but that's for a future week, because Paul actually thinks it's more important to address the tone of the question. Look at verse 20. But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? It's like Paul is saying, by all means ask the question, but make sure you ask it recognizing that you are a human being and God is God. They're the two most important words in that verse, the two key words, man and God. You see, there is something about that question that Paul seems to think is presumptuous, that says, behind it, if I don't like the answer, then I'll tell God to get lost. That says, if I can't fully understand it, then it can't be right that God owes me an understanding, God owes me an answer. There is no humility in the question. Now, I think there is a really good example of two different ways of questioning God in the story of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 1. Now, we didn't, it's not on the screen, so you're going to have to open your Bibles now. Turn to Luke chapter 1, a couple of books back from Romans. You should know this story well. We looked at it, I think, in our gospel teams the end of last year before Christmas. And so it's the story of Jesus' birth and very early on, uh, the first thing that happens is an angel comes from God, the angel is speaking on God's behalf, appears to Zechariah and says to Zechariah, even though your elderly wife Elizabeth is well beyond child-rearing age, even though you've never been able to have a child before now, I'm going to make your wife pregnant. You are going to have a baby. And Zechariah questions Gabriel, the angel speaking for God, look at verse 18, how can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. But God doesn't like his question. Zechariah is struck dumb for nine months for asking it, unable to speak for nine months. But then further on, the angel appears to Mary and says, you are going to have a baby and this is even more miraculous because you are a virgin. And like Zechariah, Mary questions Gabriel, who's speaking for God. Look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not been intimate with a man? But this time, God is fine with the question. He explains, oh, this is how it's going to happen to Mary. So what's the difference? Is God just nicer to young women than he is to old men? That may be the case. I actually think there's some truth in that. I think God does expect more from a person who is a priest of God's people, who would have known God's Word so well, like Zechariah, he expects, you know the story of Abraham, you know I've done this before, whereas Mary is a young girl. But I think it's more than that. It's more, what is the reason for Zechariah's question and what is the reason for Mary's question? See, look back to Zechariah's story and look at what the angel said in verse 20, verse 20 of Luke 1. He says, now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, 
which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Because you did not believe my words. You see, there is a type of question or a tone of question that questions God's character. And God says that's unacceptable. That, that questions God's truthfulness, God's ability to do what He says He will do. Whereas Mary's question seems to be asking, how can this work? I, I don't get it. It wasn't reflecting a lack of faith, it was seeking to understand. And I think there is the key. God loves faith-seeking understanding. God loves it when a Christian says, you have revealed yourself to me in your son, I know he died for my sins, I know he rose again, your love is unquestionable, please help me to understand more. God loves that sort of questioning. God loves humility-seeking knowledge. God is less pleased with questions that express that idea that I have the right to demand that God answer every question I have. So go back to Romans 9 verse 20. The key, as I said before, is those two words, man and God. The key is having a rightly big picture of God and a rightly humble picture of ourselves and only then asking our questions from that perspective. Now, just for a moment, what I want you to do, I will be the test case because I don't want to have to put anyone else on the screen. Let's put up on the screen, Patrick. So, we've got God versus Phil here. Which, just so I know which one to point out, which, which side is God? Don't trick me. God's on that side. Tim Simsarin, you're in trouble later. Uh, <laughs> God is that side, I'm that side. Now, you'll notice I didn't want to break any of the Ten Commandments, just God the Word. No image for God, that's important. It's obeying His Word. Now, just think for a moment, you've got God, and you know, you know God through His Word, and you know me, because I hang around up the front here, okay? Now, compare God, Creator of the universe. Never a time where God has not existed. Me, creature, been around for a few years, but only a blip compared to God. God is omnipresent, it means God is everywhere. I am limited to this one place, in space and in time. God is holy, totally without sin. I don't want to burst your bubble and your high esteem that you hold me in, but I am a sinner. I'm a redeemed sinner, yes, I'm a forgiven sinner, but I continue to sin. God is omniscient, that is, God knows everything. God knows every thought that is going on in here tonight. God knows everything. Now, I will not pretend and be falsely humble, I think I'm reasonably intelligent, but there is a lot of stuff I don't know. And frankly, other than theology, which I've been spending a lot of time studying over the last 20 years, I think my brain has shrunk since I was 18. I think that's when I was at my intellectual high point. I know less now. So, I'm not even on an upward trajectory towards God in terms of knowledge. I know less about this world than I knew 20 years ago. And I could go on and on with regard to all the differences between God and between man. And I hope you start to see Paul's point. His point is, if you really understand God and you really understand yourself, who am I, a mere man, to talk back to God? And especially, who am I to doubt God's goodness? Who am I to question God's fairness? Now, for the last part of the talk, I just want to expand on that a little with respect to the question of knowledge. So, I want to think about our knowledge, that difference between God and man. Human beings are incredible things. You are incredible, and I'm not just saying that to make you feel good, you are actually incredible. Sometimes, 
we, we feel down on ourselves, rightly because of our sin, but actually we are God's most amazing creation. Human beings are amazing. God has made you in His image and you have the capacity in your mind to discover incredible things. The things human beings have discovered about our world and the universe are amazing. But here's the thing, you cannot know the mind of God. You just can't. You see, you can't work it out. It's not in our capabilities. He is the Creator and we are creatures. It says that in 1 Corinthians 2.11, it says, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Think about this for a moment. We cannot even know the thoughts of another human being. I've got a fair idea what Alex over here is thinking at the front because he was starting to drift away a little bit. No, sorry. Alex. <laughs> and I've got a fair idea, you know, I can look out and I can have a guess and I can say there's a few people who there's not a lot going on in their brain at the moment. There's other people who are grappling with it and so people don't realise I can see you from the front. But anyway, <laughs> but you, know, you cannot know the mind of another human being. More than that, it's not actually even good for you to know the minds of other human beings. Our minds are just not capable of knowing everything. Have you ever had one of those days where you've got so much going on in your brain and you've got so much to do and so much to think that actually you just have a meltdown and you can't do anything and you're sort of like, it just gets all too much and that's just the stuff in your brain. Imagine if you then also had in your brain all the 120 other people in here, what's going on in their brain, your brain would explode literally. I use that word advisedly. It would drive you insane. That is God's prerogative to be all-knowing. But more than that, more than the finiteness of our brains, just because we're creatures and not the Creator, on top of that, our minds are distorted by sin. Every human being that I meet, including most Christians, underestimates the impact of sin on our ability to know things about God, to think spiritually. We have this, every person has this, every person has this irrational picture where they say, I am the only person in the world who is totally fair-minded. You're not, and I'm not. You see, that is not the Bible's picture of us, and it's not the reality for any person I know. Our thinking is marred, it's distorted by sin. The fall has impacted every aspect of us, not just our moral capacity, but much more, our ability to discern spiritual things, to know and understand God. But the wonder of God is that God comes to us, finite, fallen creatures, and He opens our eyes to understanding and even reveals His own mind to us. Now, I want you to really grasp how incredible this is. You see, I used the verse from 1 Corinthians 2 before to make the point that you don't have the thoughts of God naturally. But now, look at 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12 again, it's on the screen. And just listen very carefully. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. By these things, He's talking about His mind. God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And here's the important part. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God 
so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. Now, you know this, but I want you to see how incredible it is. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God through the Scriptures has actually revealed God's mind to you. Isn't that incredible? And think about this, think about just how much of God's mind He has revealed to you. About His power, about His might, about His love, about His mercy, about His grace. And God has revealed so much of His plans to us. Not just His plans for you, that He sent His Son to die for you and rose again so you could have eternal life, but His actual plans for the whole world. That when Jesus returns, He will raise you from the dead to live in His kingdom forever. And everything will be underneath the rule of Jesus. Now, God didn't have to reveal all that to us, like I said before. He didn't even have to save us, no one deserves it. But He does it because of His mercy and grace. And God has given you and me, God has given us everything we need to know for our salvation and for how to live to please Him. You do not need to know anything else than what God has already revealed. Everything essential. Just look, it's a famous verse, look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it'll come up on the screen. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see what it's saying? It's saying, you don't need anything else. The Scriptures are enough to make us complete and to equip us for every good work. But, that doesn't mean that we know everything. It doesn't mean that God has revealed or has to reveal everything about Himself and everything about His plans for the universe and everything about how it all fits together and it doesn't mean that God has to reveal that to you to prove Himself to you. The funny thing is, even though He doesn't have to prove Himself to us, He has already. If you ever want to think, well, does God love me? He's proven it to you at the cross of Jesus. But the point is, there are hidden things that God does not reveal. Just look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. See, if God has not revealed something to us, it says, by definition, therefore it is not necessary for us to know it. It might even be for our own good, in fact it would be, for our own good because to know it is not, it's beyond our comprehension. There are hidden things that God doesn't think we need to know. But God has revealed enough for us to trust Him. See, everything God has revealed about Himself and about His plans is true. There will be no surprises with God. There's not like, oh, you said this, but this is different. No, everything God has revealed is exactly as it is. It is true, but we don't know everything. And in the things we don't know, God says, trust me. Put up uh, this picture, I'm proud of this picture. It's very rare that I contribute anything of this sort to St. George Royal Parish. So here we go, where's, where's our picture? There it is, look at that. Look at how colourful it is. Actually, I think Natani actually did it. But anyway. Um, 
Now, the point of it, see, I've just picked randomly some great things God has revealed to us. God is our Father, he, he is the Eternal Father. Election, God has chosen us before the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit and His work in us. Jesus and the cross, you notice they're right at the centre. Faith and repentance, that's how we receive the gift. Hope, forgiveness, grace. There's all sorts of doctrines like that and they are wonderful and, and there is more, and enough, more than enough revealed to trust God. But then there are those gaps. And in those gaps, God says, I haven't revealed those bits, but they'll be consistent with the things I have revealed about myself and my character and my plan. And I've given you enough, most wonderfully in Jesus and the cross, to trust me on the parts of my mind and the parts of my plan that I have said you don't need to know just yet. Now, it's not wrong to ask questions to try to understand the gaps. But when we do it, we've got to be careful. We do it and we say, I can only ask questions to fill those gaps tentatively. And I can only do it in a way that does not deny any of the other truths that God has revealed that, are, that must be right. And we need to do it with real humility, recognising that we are human beings and God is God. And we need to recognise that God doesn't owe us anything. And if we find answers that grate on us in the Scriptures, and can I tell you, if you don't find answers that grate on you in the Scriptures, you're not understanding them right. If we find answers in the Scriptures that grate on us, if we don't do that, then we're not reading them closely enough. If we, don't, if we find things that we struggle to accept, well, actually, that's the point where we decide, do I really trust God or not? See, it's very easy to follow the God who agrees with you on everything. Really, really easy to follow the God who agrees with you on everything. It's really easy because it's worshipping yourself. It's making God in your image. That's why it's so easy. Self-worship is always easy. It's called sin. You see, if we find answers that grate on us in the Scriptures, well... Firstly, grapple with it to make sure you've understood it correctly. You don't want to have something grating on you where you're actually wrong. So, grapple with it. But then we say, God is God and I am a human being. And the many things I do know about God that God has revealed to me, they tell me that it's okay to trust Him on the things that I don't know. See, I know that God loves me though I don't deserve it. He sent His Son to die for me. So I think I can trust him with these other things. And if there is a problem, we need to remember the problem is with me, not with God. I don't mean the problem's always with me, I mean you as well. See, and I need to work at accepting God's word with humility. And that may take time, that's the thing. Sometimes we have an emotional reaction when God's word grates with us, but always we need to keep coming back and saying, I'm the one with the problem. Either I don't understand it well enough, or I'm not trusting God. God doesn't have to answer my question. He doesn't have to prove Himself to me. He's already done that in Jesus. That's why the key word to describe a godly attitude to God is humility. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. He's quoting Psalm 18. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 
It's funny, as I close tonight, I want to say different things to different people here tonight, and you'll have to diagnose which bit is relevant to you, okay? If you are not yet a Christian here tonight, I want to say to you, ask whatever question you want. Grapple with things. That's what I want to say to you, because God has revealed Himself to you, and He wants you to discover His love and His mercy. And if, in particular, I want you to grapple with where God has shown Himself most clearly, and that is the Gospels, where you see Jesus who died for your sins and rose again so that you might have eternal life. So I want to say to you, ask whatever questions you want, but especially about that. But then I also want to say to you, if you're not a Christian here tonight, don't wait for all your questions to be answered before you become a a Christian and trust Jesus. I want to say to you, ask your questions of Jesus and His death and resurrection, and then, if you are convinced of that, trust Him, and then work out the rest after that. But then to the Christian, which is most of us here tonight, well, to many Christians, even after the second half of my talk, I want to say to you, ask more questions. Sounds strange, because I've just been talking about humility and all sorts of things. I actually want to say to you, ask more questions. And by that I mean, grapple more with the Scriptures. Too many Christians don't even come close to grasping all the wonderful things that God has revealed in His Word. Can we put up my colourful picture again, Patrick? Too many Christians have a lot more black space than that. Because they haven't plumbed the depths of God's Word where He has revealed Himself to us. Too many Christians are not even close to the secret things because they haven't actually grappled with the revealed things. Too many Christians live with a simple faith living on milk when there is solid food there to digest. So I want to say to you, commit yourself to the study of the Scriptures personally and in your Gospel teams and and come and talk to me to find other ways to actually grow your understanding of God and His Word. But then, to all Christians, I also want to say, do that with humility. Don't be like Zechariah. Don't be like the man of Romans 9 who demands, God, you explain yourself to me or I won't accept you. That is sin. Instead, be like Mary. Be someone who says, God, I trust you and I know all these wonderful things about you and then I ask my questions from a basis of faith. Faith seeking understanding. That's what God loves in His people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself so wonderfully to us in Your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we thank You in particular that we know Your incredible love, that He died for us to take away our sin so that we might know Your grace and forgiveness. And Father, we pray that we might have that keen attitude to Your Scriptures that we might always be questioning, grappling with the Scriptures to know You better and understand them better. But help us to do that from a position of faith. Help us to do that with humility, recognising that we are mere human beings and You are the God of the universe. And especially help us to do that, seeking understanding rather than standing in judgment over You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.